This is the Crisis Cleanup Podcast, just-in-time training and thoughtful conversation about voluntary disaster relief. I'm your host, Aaron Titus. Episode 2. This episode is the first in the series about disaster relief volunteerism. Why do we volunteer? So I really started it as a way to keep my resume fresh, and really I found a, a second calling. So the, the motivations that we've identified are uh, values, learning about uh, the people who you're serving, sort of feeling needed, feeling good about yourself, to stop thinking about your own troubles, uh, gain skills. I, I kind of look around and see stuff that needs to be done, and, and I'm always upset that you know somebody should do something about that. And at some point, you kind of realize, like, oh, you know, I, I guess I'm that somebody or we're that somebody. It was... Um born out of necessity. I never want to feel like I did on that first day. Ronnie DeVries is a former shop manager and volunteer coordinator for TXRX, a makerspace in Houston, Texas. I struggle to describe Ronnie. Imagine a six foot three inch bear of a man, or perhaps a turbocharged freight train, or maybe a bearded human version of a 36 ounce caffeinated sports drink and then cross that intensity and power with the friendliness, caring, humility, and approachability of a pastor. Okay, so my name is uh, Ronnie DeVries. I'm in Houston, Texas. Ronnie built that shop with his bare hands and can tell you every detail of every machine. But when we talk about Hurricane Harvey, he is even more intense about his love for his community. Um, I've lived here or in the area, you know, my whole life. Alicia hit maybe a week before I turned five, but I still vividly remember it because the eye passed over the Houston area, it passed over um, our house. We were there. My, my aunt lived next door in a trailer. She came with us and stayed with us in our house. And uh, a tornado hit next door. It stuck with me. It was a powerful experience, and it's something that uh, I've just internalized. And I knew that, you know, so quickly, you know, it can go from being fine to just complete chaos. After Hurricane Harvey hit the Houston area, he, like most people, watched the news and social media. His wife worked at an animal shelter, so he helped take care of animals for a little while. Then hearing about the shelter at the convention center, he drove downtown to drop off some donations his neighbors had collected. He didn't realize it at the time, but that decision was going to change his life. Kind of poking my nose around, see where I can help. And uh, that's what I was doing after after Harvey. You know, there's some police officers there providing security. I asked if I could bring stuff, and they said, uh, sure, I guess go to the front. And then there was, thankfully, a Boy Scout troop there doing some, uh, trying to, you know, take the, um, the donations and kind of sort them. But uh, they were overwhelmed, and everywhere I kind of turned, there was some system set up, but they were sort of breaking under the strain of how many people were coming in quickly. You know, things would happen, like the National Guard would show up and need help unloading stuff, and, you know, you would assume somebody had already arranged for that, but it was just a mess. No one did, so we sent people, and when the donations sort of overflowed, we arranged to go to a second location. Their systems just kind of broke under the strain. The, The ability to sign up people for their volunteer system, the ability to train and orient people, the amount of people coming in both to volunteer and that needed help, just ramped up so quick there you know the the systems they had set up didn't really allow for that skill it had to be a lot more fluid ronnie instinctively began organizing volunteers and ended up with a vip security badge from the mayor he facilitated a lot of the volunteerism at the george r brown convention center 
We'll return to Ronnie in a future episode about spontaneous volunteerism and community brokers, but I asked Ronnie why he volunteered and what advice he would have given himself and others. I, I kind of look around and see stuff that needs to be done, and, and I'm always upset that you know somebody should do something about that, and at some point you kind of realize, like, oh, you know, I, I guess I'm that somebody or we're that somebody. If, if you had asked me ahead of time before, could I do something like this? Would I be the right person to do the things I did and make the calls that I made? And I would have said no, because often, you know, we don't have the confidence. We don't have the, the experience. You know, you, you tell yourself all these things, but sometimes, like it or not, like you're the person for whatever reason, whatever circumstances that come together, you're the person that's there that it's put upon to do this. As far as advice I would give myself is just, just show up, try, you know, you're going to help. Even if it's just encouragement, even just in a, in a small way, um, you'll be surprised uh, what you can accomplish when you have no choice but to kind of keep going. I completely identify with Ronnie. Disasters are overwhelming, and there's always too much to do. After a disaster, we find ourselves in a situation that we don't fully understand, and we learn later is unknowable by anyone. It's like we find ourselves on the 50-yard line of a football game, holding the ball. Linemen seem to be closing in from every direction. We've never played football before in our lives. We're not even sure which way to run. But we run. And if we're lucky, we might be able to hand the ball off to someone else. If we're lucky. Uh, hi, I'm Art Stukas. Uh, I'm an associate professor of social psychology here at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. And I've been studying volunteering and community involvement for a number of years uh, with my colleagues at the University of Minnesota and Cutstown University, Mark Snyder and Gil Clary. A dual citizen of the United States and Australia. Dr. Stukas and I recently discussed why people volunteer and how disaster relief volunteerism overlaps with Blue Skies volunteerism. There are three pillars to volunteerism, trust, training, and supervision. Before a formal organization or informal group can use a volunteer, they must trust, train, and have the ability to supervise him or her. During peacetime, normal volunteers have plenty of time to establish trust, training, and supervision. However, disaster relief is extremely urgent and time-sensitive. Because of these time and resource constraints, relief organizations don't have time to establish trust, training, and supervision with new volunteers. They're spending all of their energy responding. Solving the challenges of community disaster relief volunteerism is the subject of a future episode, but one key to keeping volunteers engaged is understanding why they showed up in the first place. Dr. Stukas and his colleagues' research asks, what function does volunteerism have in a volunteer's life? Or, put another way, why do people volunteer? They have identified at least six broad reasons which Dr. Stukas shared with me. So we have a scale called the Volunteer Functions Inventory that has six subscales, six motives for volunteering, and they're very broad. And uh, it's probable that there are other motivations that aren't in our scale, right? So we were at the general level, but there would be specific types of volunteering, and disaster relief might be one uh, where you would have additional motivations. 
or some of the motivations we identified don't apply. So the, the motivations that we've identified in our scale are uh, values, the values function. Usually these are humanitarian or altruistic values, and those are the ones that we focused on. We've got understanding motivation, which is learning about a cause, learning about uh, the people who you're serving or the organization that you're serving, uh, and in some ways learning about your own strengths, uh, learning what you're capable of. So there's a little bit of that mixed into this understanding function. We've got an enhancement function, which we used to call esteem enhancement, but maybe it's broader than just self-esteem, but it's sort of feeling needed, feeling good about yourself. We've got uh, the inverse of that, which is protective motivation. It's uh, engaging in um, these helpful acts in order to avoid your own personal problems, to stop thinking uh, about your own troubles. Maybe people feel uh, guilty about being uh, privileged in an environment where many people are not. Uh, social function, which is being networked into a social group where volunteering is a norm, volunteering is important. It could be social pressure. It could be, you know, other people want me to volunteer. It could also be, you know, the opportunity to do this with people you know, people you care about, right? So it's sort of that that social experience. And then the last one is um, relevant primarily to young people and students, but it's that career function where you do gain skills. You mentioned uh, stress training and uh, supervision. Well, the training part and the actual experience of volunteering may give people certainly a line for their resume that they can then leverage to pursue other other career-related goals. So, so those are the six. Um, I was looking at some bushfire research earlier, and you could add things like a concern about safety. Uh, connections to the community is another one that's been added, so community concern. Uh, and the community could be defined in various ways. I mean, the original research by Mark Snyder and Alan Emoto was, was focused on uh, the community of people who were, um, at that point, dying regularly from AIDS. Uh, and so those who were, who were concerned about that community you know, might be motivated to support those that they empathized with or that they shared a community membership with. Of course, many people feel more than one motivation when they're volunteering. And just about any reason to volunteer is a good reason in my book. As I apply Dr. Stukas's inventory to my own volunteerism, I notice a slight difference between my blue skies motivations and my disaster relief motivations. On a day-to-day basis, I'm motivated to volunteer with my church and Boy Scouts, primarily by my values and the opportunity to socialize with good people. But when someone asks why I volunteer after disasters, my first response is, how could I not? I have not served in the armed forces. I honor those who have. I've been told that when you're in the middle of a battle, you're not fighting for freedom or for your country. You're fighting for your buddy next to you. That makes a lot of sense to me. How can I tell my colleagues Dorothy or Pam or Gabe that I'm too busy for them in my air-conditioned home when I know that they're giving their blood, sweat, and tears to hurricane, flood, or tornado survivors? How can I not help them when I know that I can. Perhaps I'm driven by a combination of my desire to avoid the pain of not helping my friends and survivors. Perhaps I just know it's the right thing to do. Or maybe I've learned what Ronnie DeVries taught us, that at some point you realize that you're that somebody. William T.J. Porter. Hi, I'm William Porter, and I lead operational planning for Team Rubicon. Had another way to describe disaster relief volunteerism. So I really started it as a way to keep my resume fresh. I was a law enforcement officer, and 
there wasn't a lot of jobs uh, in the location where I was at. In fact, there was no law enforcement jobs. So I tried to find a way to do something to keep my resume fresh. And really, I found a, a second calling. Working in disaster relief and disaster response gave me another avenue of using my skills uh, and really to help people. And I will say that, you know, after being in law, law enforcement for 13 years and now doing, you know, disaster relief for the last like six years, uh, it is the most impactful, most motivating thing that I've ever done in my life. Uh, much more so than, than doing what I did in law enforcement. Uh, obviously, you're helping the community uh, when you're a cop, but the amount of positivity that you receive doing disaster relief is just, it's, it's not parallel to anything else you could experience. For our, a lot of our members, it's the same thing. They've never experienced the tragedy that, that occurs with a disaster. So they're getting that sensory overload of, of all the, the destruction and, and you know sometimes death. But being able to see that homeowner and experience what they're going through, where there's that series of hopelessness, um, there's a lot of ambiguity because there's not clear direction. And being able to point them in some direction uh, and give them that little glimmer of hope and help them what essentially becomes on their worst day uh, is really what brings our volunteers back again and again. Uh, and, and that is something that we pull our volunteers on routinely. And they consistently say that being able to help that homeowner in that, that little way, getting them back in their homes, cutting those trees down so they can save some money, whatever that is, uh, that is what keeps them coming back year after year. Most people consider volunteerism an unmitigated virtue, but not everyone. As we'll discuss in future episodes, volunteerism is often inefficient. Sometimes humanitarians struggle with a savior complex. By the way, check out Barbie Savior on Instagram on that subject. Volunteerism is a black eye on disaster relief after some disasters, and everyone wishes people would stop sending garbage or 10,000 teddy bears to disaster zones. I recently saw a plaque posted at the Lower Ninth Ward Living Museum that directly challenged the premise of disaster relief volunteerism. It said, Do the math. By 2010, an estimated 2 million volunteers had come to New Orleans to participate in post-Katrina surface projects, their typical cost for flight, food, lodging, and transportation was approximately $1,000 for a week-long visit. Two million volunteers spent about $2 billion. It continues, Of the 5,300 homes in the Lower Ninth Ward pre-Katrina, only 1,200 have been repaired or rebuilt. The average listing price of a house in the Lower Ninth Ward is $104,000. $2 billion of volunteer expenses translates into 19,230 homes in the Lower Ninth Ward. In other words, had volunteers stayed home and sent their $1,000 directly to rebuilding organizations, this neighborhood could have been rebuilt nearly four times over. Hi, my name is Matthew Marchetti. I am one of the co-founders of Crowdsource Rescue. I asked Matthew Marchetti about this critique on volunteerism. I don't see how you could do it without volunteers. Uh, disasters take everything from everybody. When you sit there and do the math and say, okay, if there's a thousand volunteers and they all spend a thousand dollars, that'd be X number of dollars, you know, and that can build X number of homes. Well, I don't think the math really works that way. I don't think they would just outright donate that thousand dollars. I don't think those are equivocal. Maybe they donate a hundred dollars, but what they're ultimately paying for is they're paying for an experience. 
the money is never enough. Like you have to rely on the goodness of people. You have to rely on volunteers. Yes, there are some times when it is inefficient, but disasters are inefficient. Again, this is TJ Porter. You can't just look at one situation or the dollar amount spent there. You have to look at how many times those people have been invigorated to engage uh, after that. Uh, yes, this one situation may cost $1,000 per volunteer, but if those volunteers go out five more times, you've now increased your return on investment five times. And I, and I do, in my heart of hearts, believe that that is the case. You know, it does take a special type of person to come out and volunteer, and it's those that, you know, are willing to do it for nothing more than, than just the goodness that it brings. And humanity as a whole obviously needs more of that. And if, if that was measured... Uh, we'll really see uh, what the true value is uh, with volunteers. But I think all the data suggests at this point that it's definitely a net positive. He's right. In my work at Crisis Cleanup, we've been able to estimate the value of an average volunteer to his or her community. That number hovers between about $950 and $1,300. The calculation is pretty simple. We take the number of completed cases and multiply it by the value of the service, for example, based on market and census data, a muckout has an average commercial value of about $18,000. Removing an average tree is about $650 and so on. Then we divide the total reported value by the total number of volunteers. This approach comes with some significant caveats, though. First, volunteers don't always document their work, so we can't measure a lot of it. Second, this data is limited to the 1,400 organizations who have used crisis cleanup. A lot of cleanup is not captured. Third, crisis cleanup only covers one small sliver of the recovery cycle. It doesn't capture the value of volunteers doing feeding, donations management, case management, rebuilding, or hundreds of other activities. All of this means that a lot of work is still unmeasured, and our estimates are probably low. But emergency management as a profession is not trained to acknowledge that value. After disasters, FEMA sometimes gives recovery money to state and local governments. Local governments must pay back 25% of that grant to FEMA. Without going into too much detail, FEMA will allow some volunteer hours to count against the local cost share at some rate set by an actuary, usually around $20 to $25 per hour, depending on the skill of the volunteer. As a result, emergency managers often demand hours from relief organizations, with a lot of costly documentation. Sometimes those demands can get intense and even abusive. Notwithstanding, there is good reason to believe that these numbers undervalue volunteer labor, as TJ explains. One of the things that we're doing is we're using some software and some databases uh, basically provided by the insurance industry, uh, and we're trying to figure out truly what the value is for the quote-unquote unskilled labor that's provided during a disaster. And spoiler alert, uh, we're looking at almost a 30 to 40% increase in valuation, even for those unskilled things like debris removal. Then when you talk about what the insurance industry considers skilled, but the federal government considers unskilled, which is things like deconstruction or the mucking guts, uh, the number goes up to almost 60% higher. And in some regards, when you talk about the more specialized things like felling trees or using heavy equipment, you're talking about a six-time increase in the valuation. So with the limited research that we've conducted thus far, volunteer labor is being undervalued. Uh, and we definitely want to change that narrative. I'll tell you one more reason why I volunteer after disasters. You don't survive too long in voluntary disaster relief unless you're a good person at your core. 
Professionally, I've worked in and around several industries. When I attend a convention full of lawyers, the people who receive honors may or may not be honorable. But when I attend a VOAD convention, we celebrate goodness. Sure, there's politics pushing and shoving, but there is a higher per capita rate of people endowed with a deep love of their fellow man in voluntary disaster relief than in any other industry I've known. The people who are honored there are people you hope your children emulate when they're grown. I've secretly found myself hoping that many of them will just have to make it to heaven because if they don't, I don't see how I've got a chance. Disaster relief is hard, really hard. So why do we do it? Why do you volunteer? Yeah, I mean, for me, the the thing that that is always the most challenging is, you know, our, our direct involvement ends when, when the FEMA mission assignment stopped for us. That's Katrina French, the Disaster Services Program Officer for the Disaster Services Unit of the Corporation for National Community Service, or CNCS, in Washington, D.C. I struggle with that every single time. I struggle with that every single time I'm at the end of my deployment and I'm coming off the ground. Um, I struggle with that every time we close out a mission assignment because I know that for every person that we've helped, that there were three or four others that we weren't able to help because we've got a lane and we've only got so many people working that lane. And there have been times that I've needed to take a couple of days off. And part of that is getting sleep. And part of it is journaling. When I first come off of the deployment, even sometimes before I come off the deployment, I start making lists and I make a list of all of the things that I'm worried about, the things that are causing restlessness, fully knowing that these are things that I can't do anything about. And then I make another list and I make a list of all of the things that we've been able to do, all of the positive impact that we've had. And one of the things that I absolutely love about service and about particularly my AmeriCorps years of service is that service is like taking a tiny little pebble and throwing it into a massive still lake and the ripples spread out and at some point you lose sight of where the ripples are. You don't know where they've landed. You don't know what's going to happen to them. And our service is like that. We, we do these actions. We, we put a roof on a house. We take a tree off of the house. We muck and get a home. Um, but we're not going to see that home rebuilt. We're not going to see the people move back home. We're not going to see the birthday parties and the retirement parties and the weddings and the everyday moments of sending your kids back to school in the fall. We're not going to see the lifespan of that home and that family that's going to come home to it. The service I've been able to provide and the service that our members provide that we will never fully understand or know or be able to count the beneficiaries of that. That is just this really super cool feeling, you know, this this peace, this uh, satisfaction, and we'll never be able to grasp it because it is infinite from our perspective. Just like the ripple after it goes over the horizon. Just like the ripples. Please 
feel free to link to episodes in your monthly or quarterly VOAD emails and contact me if you would like me to cover a particular topic. Contact Crisis Cleanup on Facebook or email Aaron at crisiscleanup.org. Remember, if it wasn't overwhelming, it would be called an inconvenience, not a disaster. So if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, don't worry, you're not alone. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Titus.